even if you like Dick Cowan, you can't carry a tune in a bucket, you can shout out, I'll fly away. That's good. Those good old Baptist hymns. Notice the Roman Catholics really struggling with that one this morning. Sorry about that. Every once in a while, you know, our Baptist side has to break out. There it is. Guys, uh, we are coming to the last two chapters in the book of Revelation. Hallelujah, bye and bye. We're making it. And what's uh, really great about it is that as we have seen through these studies, there are lots of different perspectives on Revelation. You have the four interpretive frameworks that we looked at before we even began chapter 4 because from chapter 4 to chapter 19, uh, you have four distinct viewpoints among those who believe the Bible is the Word of God. And uh, we saw, bottom line, the most important thing about all this is to know that Jesus is coming back. There is a heaven and there is a hell. We need to trust in Him uh, and that the Bible is true. But even among those who believe the Bible is true, there's a lot of debate about which interpretive framework is the correct one. And then we got to Revelation 20 with the millennium. And we saw that there are four popular views of the meaning of the millennium. Can't even figure out what the meaning of the millennium is. Agree on that. So we have different schools of thought on that. But when we come to Revelation 21, there are some debates, but they're not nearly as uh, vast and divided as are the debates on chapters 4 through 19. Now we all basically come together on chapter 21, we know that we're talking about the eternal state. The battle is over. Heaven is here. Uh, the, the eternal state is now to be experienced. And basically, all the evangelical interpreters sort of pull together at this point. We say, you know, this is it. This is the end. We know that what brings it about is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And some, of course, believe that He's come in a couple of different ways before that, as we saw in our views of the millennium. Some would have Christ coming about three times. Uh, some only once, but nonetheless, what ushers in this eternal state is the final appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ on the earth, and we have this new age that's ushered in for us. And I don't know of anything in all of life that can be more important than this. And I remember when I became a believer myself in my mid-twenties, about 30 years ago, uh, I, I realized it all boils down to this. What is the answer to life itself? and how one can enter eternal life. Is there such a thing as eternal life? And if there is, how do you get there? I don't know of anything that could be more important than this for your personal life and for the, the lives of those that you know and love the best. So we're going to enter a three-week study of chapters 21 and 22, uh, which at the end of the Bible comes the most important thing of all. What is this heaven all about and how do we get there? So we're going to look at uh, the first eight verses of chapter 21 this morning. And we're going to notice uh, an interesting parallel. Uh, next week, Rocky's going to take us from 21.9 through 22.5. But what you're going to see is there's a parallel between what we're going to look at this morning and what we're going to look at next Thursday morning. 21.1 through 8 goes through several issues. And you know, if you looked at uh, Wilcox, uh, at all before today, you will notice he mentions this, that there are seven revelations unfolding in one through eight. I don't know that I'm using the same categories he's got, but nonetheless, you will see the same issues being dealt with in these latter verses only unpacked for us in uh, more grandeur and more detail. Uh, so it's being emphasized, uh, which is what we're saying. Now, what we want to think about is the future life of the believer. 
And in order for us to just get a grasp on, on what happens to us uh, in death, let's, let's look at three stages for the believer, just as an introduction to this. First of all, uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul speaks of our being at home in the body, but away from the Lord. He says that right now we're at home in the body, but we're away from the Lord. That is, we're not, not in heaven where he is. Then the Apostle talks about when we will be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Okay? So when you die, your spirit leaves your body. And uh, your relatives may have your body up there in a casket and we'll be real reverent about it and we'll take that casket and lovingly place it in the ground. But the fact of the matter is, by the time we're doing all that, you're long gone. <laughs> you're not in that body. Uh, we're honoring your remains. And they're dead remains. It's just like dust. From dust we came, and to dust we shall return. Earth to ashes, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, and dust to dust. Uh, but your spirit, that which is uh, your immaterial self that is inside your body, that goes on to be with the Lord. And the Apostle Paul talks about this also in Second Corinthians chapter five. He also talks about it in Philippians one, where he's talking about his own death, and he says. It is better by far to, to leave here and be with Christ. And that's the kind of language he uses. He talks about leaving here, departing, and being with Christ at his death. So the Apostle Paul made it clear in those two passages in particular that at death we are with the Lord. So for those who have some theory of soul sleep or something like that, some intermediate place. The Apostle Paul doesn't seem to know anything about that. Uh, he speaks of our going immediately into the Lord's presence, but without our bodies, because our bodies are remaining on the earth, our dead bodies. So our first state is the one that we're in now. We are uh, at home in our bodies. We have our bodies, but we're not in the presence of the Lord in heaven. Secondly, uh, when we die, we will be away from our bodies. We'll be at home with the Lord. Now, what that existence is like, we don't know, but I would suggest to you that Revelation chapter 20 was telling us something about it. Uh, we shall be with the Lord. Uh, it will be glorious. Uh, we may, maybe he'll give us uh, white robes to wear so that we can at least tell where we are <laughs> because we'll be, we won't have bodies, nothing visible there. But we know that we'll reign with him and we'll also be longing for his second coming because when he comes... As we have seen, we will be at home in the body and at home with the Lord. That's the ultimate glory for the Christian. We not only are with the Lord, but we're with the Lord in our bodies. And you say, how is that going to happen? Well, we're told that when Jesus Christ comes back with a shout from the archangel and the trumpet blast of God, that the dead in Christ will rise first. So when Jesus Christ comes back at his glorious return, for example, in Revelation chapter 19, what will happen is he will renew the bodies of all of his people. Now, we know from what we saw last week that there's a final judgment so that everyone is raised, the righteous and the unrighteous, and there's a final judgment. And those whose names are written in the book of life uh, shall be welcomed into eternal dwellings with the Lord. And those who do not have their names written in the book of life, who have not received Jesus Christ as Savior, will face the deeds written in, in the book of all their deeds. And they'll have to give answer for them. And, of course, the answer is going to be that you, you, have to be, you have to pay for your own sin. 
and face the punishment that comes from that. So there's going to be a division at the end of time. But when Christ comes and raises, he, he will raise the body of everyone. There will be a general resurrection. But he will raise the bodies of the righteous to be with him forever. They will be in glorified bodies. So we'll get our bodies back, our bodies that have disintegrated into dust, maybe some of them at the bottom of the ocean if you die while at sea. Uh, all those bodies will be reconstituted into a resurrected body, just like Jesus Christ's body was raised. Now, his was only dead three days. Ours may be dead for, for a century. But nonetheless, it'll be, we'll have a reconstituted, resurrected body, so we'll have our bodies back. That's the, the state we will be in when we enter the eternal state. Now, those who are dead in Christ will rise first. If Christ comes back while we're still alive, then we shall follow them. We'll be raised after them. So those who have died first will be honored first. So if your parents were believers in Christ and Christ comes back today, you'll see them go up first. They will get the first honor, which will be a privilege for all of us to see that. Those that we loved and have gone before us will be honored before us. So that's what Paul teaches us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and some other places, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and some other places. So this, these are the stages that we're, we're going through. Now, the stage we're going to be talking about is this third one. What's going to happen? What's that going to be like when we enter the eternal state with our bodies? Now, what do we need to know about heaven? Some uh, years ago, uh, maybe, what was this, three Years ago, some of you can remind me, uh, David Williams, who uh, was an elder in this church and an active member at Amen Bible Study. In fact, David said uh, he loved Amen Bible Study because he could invite his friends, just like some of you have been invited. And he said, when I invite my friends to come to a Bible study at 6.30 in the morning, they don't have any excuses. <laughs> I mean, what are you doing at 6.30? You know? So he loved the early morning hour because there were no excuses for his friends. And so if you were one of his friends, that's what he was doing to you. He was inviting you to a Bible study where you could not have a conflict. Um, but David would come and, and brought some of his friends. Maybe some of you are here in this room. And uh, I'll never forget when David came back from Mayo's. And uh, Don Jordan, I think you were up there at the same time in Rochester. And, and uh, when David got his diagnosis that he had pancreatic cancer. And it was God's providence that Don, you were up there to comfort him. And David came back. And after amen one morning, he asked to speak to me right after he got back. So we went to my office and spoke. And I'll never forget what it felt like when David told me he had pancreatic cancer and had about six months to live. It just absolutely took my breath away. I, you know, I'm, I'm a verbal person, but I just I, I didn't know what to say. I was so stunned. And David was treating it like uh, he got an invitation to go somewhere. And, you know, he was thinking about it and making travel plans. I mean, that, that was about it. I mean, some guys just don't emote very much, I guess. I don't know. You know, David just seemed to be so calm. I was about to fall apart. Uh, and here's what he said to me. He said, well, uh, looks like I'm, I'm going to be going to heaven here real soon. He said, I want to tell you, Amen Bible study has been really helpful for me. I just want you to know that. And he said, you know, I think I've grown more in the past, whatever he said, four or five years than, than I have in all my life spiritually. He said, I, a lot of that's just from being with these guys, you know, every Thursday morning. I said, well, Boy, I'm glad to hear that. And he said, now he said, Sandy, I, I have a task ahead of me. He said, I'm going to be going to heaven here real soon. I need your help. I said, David, you just tell me what to do to help you. And he said, I want to study where I'm going to go. So I want you to put me on a learning track about heaven. 
and I want to read everything I can read about heaven. I've never seen a more resolute, heaven-bound person in my life. And so we got a reading list. I gave him a reading list of books about heaven, and I gave him certain texts in the Bible to read. And during the, the coming months, uh, we reviewed some of those materials that he was reading. He was studying where he's going to go. A gentleman, the only difference between David and me and David and you is that David happened to have a little bit closer tar- target on his date. Uh, and, you know, there are some advantages to knowing. If you're going to die in six months, I guess there are advantages to knowing it. And David took every advantage of that. And so you don't know when your date is, but you know that you're going. And uh, at least everybody in this room would know that you're going to face that fork in the road. So, you know, it behooves us to be students of where we're going. Any of you who are traveling overseas, you know that you get your books out. You study whether you need a passport, whether you need a visa. You study where you're going to stay, what the right places to see, uh, how are you going to do it with, in the least amount of money, or where's the best golf course, or whatever it is. You study those things. We do more of that for our secular trips for 10 days overseas somewhere than we do where we're going to spend eternity. But one of, the, one of the texts that David and I studied together was Revelation 21 and 22. That's what we're going to study. And I can't help but think about him during these three weeks that we're studying Revelation 21 and 22. And you know what? David just, just represents every one of us. Let's study it together. Let's think about where the saints of God are going to go. And then let's think about what difference it makes for us to contemplate these things. Because these are given to us for a reason. To get us ready. And so that we can live a life in light of where we're going. Because if we spend 80 years here, 90 years here, and spend eternity there, it makes a whole lot of sense that we would spend a whole lot more time thinking about how to live in light of that dwelling place than the dwelling place in your address right now. So that's what we want to look at. We're going to see that the the Christian view of things is distinct from any other view. And it makes all the difference in the world that we get this right. And it is different from every other religion. It's different from every other uh, historical religion as well as the world-famous religions that we now know in our time. Now, the first thing we want to notice in verses 1 and 2a is that we are going to live in a new creation. Now, there are a lot of folks who have a view of heaven that is like this. Well, we're going to go up there and we're going to be like angels. And we're going to have wings and we're going to float about and we're going to play harps. And it's going to be kind of an airy-fairy existence on clouds. And we'll just kind of float from one cloud to the next in a kind of a super spiritual atmosphere. And I want you to notice that that's quite different from what's in verse 1. In fact, let's just pause right now and read all eight verses and we'll come back to verse 1. Let's look at Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and He will live with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, 
Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Okay, notice that we're going to live in a very physical existence. What happens in chapter 20, verse 11, if you back up to last week's lesson, we see a great white throne, earth and sky, as heaven and earth, fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. So when Christ comes, he will judge the earth, and we know from Second Peter 3, verses 3 through 10, that, that the uh, material world will be burned by fire. We know that when God judged the world in Noah's day, it was by water. He said, I'll never do that again. He said, when I come the second and last time, I will judge by fire. And that's exactly what God reveals to us in Second Peter chapter 3. And this is foretold in Psalm 102, verses 25 and 26 where the created order will wear, will, uh, will, uh, wear off of God like an old robe. So this world has been seen in Judeo-Christian context for a long time. It's sort of wearing out. It's, it's a garment for God to work with. And then when he's through with it, he'll throw it off. And so we, we've seen in the final judgment, he will judge the whole order of things. And we've seen the whole old order will pass away. The whole system. The whole material world as we know it. Well, what's going to happen is he's going to give a new physical existence that reminds us of Genesis chapter 1. He will be giving us a new heaven, a new earth, just as in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now at the end, God will recreate the heavens and the earth. It's very interesting, isn't it, that you have this idea at the beginning of your Bible and the end of your Bible. So in the middle of your Bible, what you have is the fall of human beings, the entrance of sin... God redeeming this ugly world, uh, still beautiful, but yet we've made it, marred it, made it ugly. He's redeeming it, and then finally we'll dispose of it and replace it with new heavens and the new earth. So it's a very physical existence. It's heaven and earth. So uh, we have a physical existence to look forward to, not some sort of airy, fairy existence. Secondly, you'll notice that... Uh, we shall live in a holy city. So first of all, it will be a physical place. And secondly, it's going to be a holy and populated place. You know, we were, we were created and placed in the Garden of Eden. And sometimes we speak of ourselves returning to Eden. But it's not really a garden to which we're returning. It's a city. You say, I don't like the city. That's not going to be any fun. I like to go out, you know, in the countryside. Well, the only cities you've known have been broken down, dirty, evil, uh, crowded cities. But this is going to be the people of God gathered in holy array. And it will be a holy place because he says there will no longer be any sea. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, it's the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Why would there no longer be any sea? The reason is you remember in Revelation, where did the beast come from? Out of the sea. 
And so, so often, uh, you know, we forget that in Jewish cosmology, the abyss where you access hell itself is at the bottom of the sea. So all these beastly things are coming out of the sea, out of the abyss. So all that God is saying to us, or what John is saying to us, that that whole access to the abyss is gone. There is no more place for the demons and the beasts to come from. So there's no longer any sea. You're not going to see any beasts there that threaten your happiness. It will be a holy city. Uh, and we're told in, in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 12, that without holiness, without sanctification, no one shall see the Lord. So there will be no person there who doesn't want to be in a holy place. Now, this is unique to, to Christianity. You know, it was... Uh, even the Egyptians, if you've been to Egypt, you'll, you'll see the ancient Egyptian religion. There was some idea of resurrection or certainly of eternal life. But it was based on your, your good deeds outweighing your bad deeds and, uh, and certain uh, mythological figures judging you at the end. But in this case, it's not that way at all. This is a perfect place for perfect people. So, oh, uh, that scares me, Pastor. Well... Look, God's going to make you perfect. When you put your trust in Jesus Christ, that's what happens. You not only get a new heart, you get a new record, and that record is absolutely clean, regardless of what you've done in your, you've done in your life. So that's the record you're going to need, and that's the heart you're going to need, because if you don't like a holy environment, you're not going to like heaven very much. So that's the reason that without holiness now, no one shall see the Lord. Without holiness, no one desires the Lord. In fact, one way that you can kind of check your maturity and sanctification is whether you're longing to be with the Lord. Now, you can check out the apostle on this, the apostle Paul. Uh, he, he says that he longs to depart and be with Christ as far as his own sake is concerned. He said, the reason I want to stay is because of you. Now, most of us, if we're honest, we say, boy, that's, I need to stretch a little bit to get there. Because there are a lot of things for my sake, that I'm enjoying about this world. You know, I love my children. I love my grandchildren. I love my wife. I love, I love making money. I love spending money. I like traveling. I like certain pleasures. And, and I like to stay here and enjoy them. The Apostle Paul said, no, look, as you mature, as you grow in holiness, you're going to understand how great heaven really is because you're going to contemplate it and you're going to see that it's vastly beyond anything you know now instead of, like C.S. Lewis said, said, instead of being like a child who's playing with mud pies and doesn't want to go to the beach to have holiday because he likes his mud pies. We're like those playing with mud pies. We don't contemplate the beach. We've never thought that there's really a better place to go. And it's really our immaturity that makes us grasp for the things in this life. So contemplating heaven will be really good for us. It is a holy city. And then notice that it will come from heaven. As a matter of fact, uh, seeing this sort of repetitive nature of verses 9 following, uh, you see in verse 10 that he carried me, says John, away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So heaven is a gift. It comes from another place. It is material. It's physical. But it's given from another place. So this world, as we know it, is dissolved, as it were, and we receive another world and another city from another place. So it's completely gift by God. Now, if we look at verse 2, we'll see uh, not only that we shall live in a new creation, but we shall be beautiful to God. 
He says, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Now, I don't know if you all remember what it was like, those of you who are married, to stand at the front of the aisle and watch that woman of yours come down the aisle. Man, that was a good sight, wasn't it? Woo, man. Dressed in her whites. And you were imagining what was going to happen in just a few hours, you know? You're all going to get together. She's beautiful. And uh, you're going to have a life companion. You like her. She's your friend or you wouldn't be marrying her. And you're thinking, you know, she makes me feel real good about myself. Now, I know you get in all kinds of problems later. I'm just talking about what you were thinking. (laughs) I'm just talking about what you were thinking on that day, standing at the end of the aisle, just watching her come down. Man, that was great. I mean, it's so sexy and romantic and beautiful. She really was beautiful to you. If she weren't beautiful, you wouldn't have married her. And if, if you can just multiply that by about 10,000, you get some idea of how the Lord looks at you. Think about this. That is the way He looks at you. He sees you as beautiful. I know. I don't get it either. <laughs> Doesn't make any sense to me either. I'm looking at you right now. I have none of those feelings. You know? I remember what I thought about my wife, and it's just, it's just not coming right now. Yeah, I just don't, it's just not, not working for me. But I'm not the Lord. I'm not your Lord. Your Lord looks at you and has those deep, passionate desires to be with you. And they have close, intimate fellowship with you. For those of you who are relationally challenged, who have a real hard time with intimacy, this is hard for you. I understand. I'm just telling you how the Lord feels about it. And I'm telling you how you're going to feel about it when you get there. Because He's going to change your ability to unite with Him at a very, very deep level. Now, why are we beautiful to Him? Let's, let's look at this for just a few moments. First of all, we want to compare ourselves to the way He critiques us in Revelation 2 and 3. You remember those chapters? He talked about our adulteries, our apostasies, our bad theology, our misbehavior, our unethical norms. I mean, terrible. The church is terrible when you look at it in Revelation 2 and 3. You get to Revelation 21, there we are. Beautiful as a bride. Why, why is that? Well, you want to think about this in futuristic terms, and you can look at Isaiah 61. You may as well go ahead and turn there because we'll come back to Isaiah in just a little bit. But in Isaiah 61, we're going to find that John is seeing some real parallels with his Old Testament. In Isaiah 61.10, God says, I delight, or, or rather, Isaiah says, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for He has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. So, Isaiah is saying, this is the great day that is coming. The Lord will delight Himself in us. He'll adorn us with His clothing, and we will be beautiful to Him. How are we beautiful? First of all, our souls will be sanctified. It's hard for us to imagine right now because our souls have so much junk in them, so many interfering messages, so many confusing, dissonant, contradictory messages things going on at the same time in our souls. And we don't perfectly love the Lord. And we don't perfectly love the truth. Nor do we love our neighbor as we ought. But let me tell you something. What's going to happen to you is you are going to be changed from the inside out. 
You are going to be a different man. You'll be the same basic identity. We'll recognize you for who you are. But your insides are going to be completely transformed. And uh, just as as the body of Jesus was transformed through his resurrection, your soul will be transformed. So he will take great delight in us because we will love him with a perfect love. Secondly, you will have a glorified body. And you will notice at different times in Revelation that John will see a saint bowing down to worship an angel or a saint even worshiping a saint bowing down. And they have to be told, no, get up. Don't worship me. I'm just, a, I'm just an angel, which is a servant of the people of God, or I'm, I'm just a saint. Worship the Lord. So the glory is so grand and so magnificent that the created order would be tempted to worship you because you and your glorified body will be absolutely magnificent. So as magnificent as your wife looked to you coming down the aisle, that's nothing compared to how you will truly be beautiful in the eyes of the Lord. And we as a people will be beautiful, which means that we will be unified. So unlike the divisions that are in your church and mine, unlike the divisions that are in your family and mine, unlike the divisions that are among your friends and mine, there will be a unified fellowship where these people together are unified. They're together a beautiful bride for the Lord, all with sanctified souls, glorified, resurrected bodies, and in perfect union with one another. That is delightful to the Lord when He sees His people loving each other as He has commanded them. And we know that this is true because our Lord Jesus Christ told us over and over again before His crucifixion that we should love one another as we have been loved. So, we shall be beautiful to God. If you're worried about being in heaven, don't worry about it because He's going to transform you to be a beautiful person. In verse 3, we see this. One of the most magnificent things about what's going to happen to us when we get to heaven is that we become the dwelling place for God. You say, how can anybody become the dwelling place for God? Well, that's exactly what's going to happen. Look at verse 3. Uh, he says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and He will live with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. Gentlemen, I don't know how, how to uh, describe this adequately. It probably goes beyond anything that I can describe. Simply to say that we know that God is going to take up residence with us. He is going to tabernacle with us. This was the meaning of His tabernacle in the wilderness. We had sinned against Him, and he, yet He made for a holy place in the middle of His people so that He could travel with them. He put a holy priesthood there. He kept the, the, the uncleanness of the people away from the tabernacle, as you remember, if you were here for our Exodus study. And He traveled with them. And at one point, their sin was so bad, He said, you all just go on without Me. Because if I live with you anymore, I'll just consume you because of your unholiness. And remember, Moses got down and pled with the Lord and said, what's the use of our going ahead if you don't go with us? And so God, as it were, repented. (laughs) Not that He changed His eternal decree, but He changed the way that He was taking a stance with them. He said, okay, I will go with you. And so God continued to go with them. And then when they got in the Holy Land, He established His presence in the temple. What Paul says is to the New Testament church is that now we're the temple of God and He takes up residence with us here on the earth. But when we get to heaven, He will have a holy residence because His people will be holy and He will dwell with us. 
Now, what's so exciting about this language is that if you turn all the way back to Leviticus chapter 26, you don't have to do that right now, and several other places in the Bible, including Ezekiel 37, where a lot of this temple language is taken from in Revelation 21 and 22, you'll find that the language here is classic covenantal language. They will be my people and I will be their God. That's classic covenantal language. That's the climax of the covenant. That is the height of God's goodness to us. Simply this, they'll be my people and I will be their God. It is a binding oath and covenant with His people forever and ever and ever. If you go in our sanctuary right now, uh, on uh, going east from here. And if you look around on the face of the balconies, uh, you know, it's a wraparound balcony, three-sided balcony. But along the balcony, you'll see some, some emblems that are circular. And you can go in there sometime and look at it. And if you start up near the pulpit, you'll see a picture of the Garden of Eden, the covenant of creation. Then you'll see uh, the lion stomping on the head of the serpent from Genesis 3.15, where we get the proto-evangel. And then you'll see uh, the covenant with uh, Noah. Am I right? Yeah, Noah. Uh, and then, because you'll see the, the sea with a, uh, the ark on it. And then you'll see the smoking fire pot with, you know, that represents the covenant with Abraham. And then if you go across on the other side, uh, you'll see uh, Mount Sinai, which represents the covenant with Moses, and then you'll see uh, a throne where David sat, the covenant, the Davidic covenant, and then you'll see uh, a lamb uh, who is triumphant, representing the new, new covenant in Christ. And the last one you'll see is a city where we don't return to Eden so much, but we return to a glorified city where God consummates the covenant with us. So those are covenantal signs all around the sanctuary, and you'll notice if you go in there. They're, they're not up in the chancel where the clergy birds are. It's down around the people. So the covenant signs wrap around the people to remind them they are bound in covenant with God. And at the very back of the church on the balcony face, on the north, on the north face on this side, you'll see on one side an alpha and the other side the omega, representing, of course, God who is alpha and omega. And Christ Jesus says he's alpha and omega, as we see here in our text today pledging to us as Alpha and Omega, He will do this. And then right in the middle, you'll see a verse. And that verse is Leviticus 26. I will be their God and they will be My people and I will walk with them. Covenantal language. There's the heart of the covenant. That is what happens now at the end of history and the beginning of the eternal state. God is taking what He promised in all those covenants. They will be my people and I will be their God. They will be my people and I will be their God. And he said that in almost every covenantal moment in history. And now we come to the conclusion of history. And he says, here it is. It's finalized. I'm telling you, those are my people and I am their God forever and ever and ever. So what you have here is the fulfillment of an eternal promise that he will tabernacle with us and that he will keep us secure. There's nothing that can come between us and the love of that covenant. There's nothing that can break the relationship between God and His people, the bride whom He loves. Now, fifthly, we shall be healed by God. Look at verse 4. We are told that He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. 
For the old order of things has passed away. All the sorrows of life as we know it are gone. Now, I told you we're going back to Isaiah. Please go back there with me for just a moment. Let's look first of all at chapter 25, verse 8. And let's look at where John is getting this language. We are told in uh, verse 7 of chapter 25, On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. This is thousand-year-old language. The Lord is going to wipe tears away from his people's faces. Then look at Isaiah 65, verses 19 and 20. Uh, let's back up to uh, verse 17, actually. And now here is, here is the richest Old Testament uh, language for telling what's coming in Revelation. This is Isaiah 65:17. Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. You see there the exact language. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. He who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere youth. He who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. And so on. So you can see the common language there between Isaiah and Revelation. So what's going to happen is there will be no more tears or crying. No more disappointments. No more frustrations. No more bereavement. Because there will be no death. No death. No more funerals. Some of you, you know, you've gotten so old that about all you can do is just go to funerals now. It's about how you spend your time going to your friends' funerals. That's pretty sad. That's going to end. No more death and no more pain. You know, Woody Allen said, I don't mind dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> you know, because it's not a pleasant experience. When my father died, it was not fun. It's not fun for him. It was not fun for me. He was in pain. And I'm thankful for all the painkillers we have today, which makes it a tolerable experience in some ways. But it's really not tolerable. I can't stand it. If we had to face that with no answer, what would life be like? And many in this life are facing life and death with no answers. Bertrand Russell, the famous atheist, said about death, There is a darkness without, and when I die, there will be darkness within. There is no splendor, no vastness anywhere, only triviality for a moment and then nothing. Huxley put it this way when his mother died and he wrote to his sister and he said, My dearest sister, I offer you no consolation, for I know of none. There are things which each must bear as best he may with the strength that has been allotted to him. That's sad. And the saddest thing about it is it's not as neutral as they say because we are all going to face the judgment seat of Christ. Everyone's going to give answer to Him. So it's not nothing. Unfortunately, it's something. For those who don't put their trust in Christ, they will face judgment, pain, death, and tears and crying for eternity. But for us, none of that. We're completely delivered of it. How I long for that day. 
I've been by enough deathbeds to make my heart long for the great things that God has promised. Then in verse 5, and first part of 6, notice this. This is going to be guaranteed. He says, it's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. He said, have you learned to trust me yet? Have you looked at my wonders in the earth? Have you looked at the resurrected body of the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you seen the power of the Spirit come? Have you seen the great and marvelous things that I've done in creating and sustaining the earth? Have you learned to know that I am the Alpha and the Omega? I'm the first letter in the alphabet and the last letter in the alphabet and everything in between. I'm the whole kitten caboodle. I rule over it all. I'm sovereign. And I'm telling you, it's done. And he says, for those who are called, they have been justified. For those who have been justified, Paul puts it in the past tense, they have been glorified. It's done. It's over. It's decreed. You have nothing to sweat if you're in Jesus Christ. So, gentlemen, don't put your confidence in your faith. Don't put your confidence in your obedience. Don't put your confidence in your ability or your ministry or the great deeds you've done. Put your confidence in the living God. And you may as well, because anywhere else is sinking sand, including yourself. You put your confidence in yourself, you're going to sink. You put your confidence in Him, you're going to rise. And you are going to be encouraged because it is done. Sixthly, we shall be satisfied by His grace. He says, without cost, you're going to drink from the streams of the water of life. Without cost, you're not going to pay for it. I'm going to pay for it. I'm the one giving it to you. It's completely by grace. And we're going to get to heaven and we are going to sing amazing grace. How sweet the sound. The saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. And we're going to praise the Lord for His unmitigated grace. And when you get there, you will understand that it was not 99% God and 1% you, which is what we normally think. That's the way we normally act. You're going to find out it was 100% God. And everything that you did, including putting your trust in Him, was because He was gracious to you to give you the gift of faith, as the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It is the gift of God. He said it's by faith, not by works, but faith is a gift of God. He gives you repentance. In Acts, we are told by the Apostles, repentance is a gift. Everything you've been doing to hang on to God, He's been giving to you so you'll hang on to Him. And we're going to find that that stream of living water has been flowing through our lives and into our lives all by the unmitigated, unadulterated grace of the living God. And He is going to receive all praise for it. You're going to be there just drinking out of that living water. Those bubbling brooks, just drinking it in, all that you want. You will have everything that you want. You know, some people think, oh, heaven, that's going to be kind of boring, you know? What are we going to do there? Just float around, play harps, you know? Just be in worship service all the time in pews. You know, my back hurts. I'm not sure I want to be in a pew, you know? And one time, uh, maybe I've told you this story, but it bears repeating. I went to see a friend of mine who was in the nursing home. She was about 80-something or another. She had Parkinson's really badly, so I could barely hear her talk. And she was a real smart aleck Christian. Uh, and a dear friend of mine's mother, you know, so I went to see her in the nursing home. I said, well, Flo, Flo, how are you doing today? She said, fine, Pastor, but i got a question. And I said, what's that, Flo? And she said, is there any sin in heaven? I said, Flo, Flo, you know better than that. There's no sin in heaven. Of course not. She said, what are we going to do for fun? (laughs) (laughs) 
I tell you, some saints, they just never give up, do they? They just want to be a pain in the neck until the last minute. Uh, my, you know, she was so funny. And I, I said, Florence, you're just something else, honey. And the fact is we can't imagine what it's like to be a son or an heir of God in a place like that. And the way we have fun is by sinning. I mean, we have to admit it, even as Christian men, a lot of the times the things we pick to do are just, they're wrong. But they're fun to us. Why? Because we're screwed up. We're screwed up. And we're so dysfunctional that we don't even know what's good for us anymore. We're learning increasingly, slowly, but we don't learn fast enough. When you get to heaven, you're going to find it really is a lovely, delightful place. And you just drink to your full satisfaction. Sometimes kids will ask me, you know, is there, is there going to be soccer in heaven? You know, or, you know, they ask you all kinds of things about what heaven's going to be like. And here's my answer. And I mean this from the bottom of my heart. When you get to heaven, you get to do whatever you want to do. Whatever your heart desires to do, you will do it, and you'll do as much of it as you want to. There'll be no naps. <laughs> you know, you'll have unreserved uh, energy, and you can do what you want to do. That's true. Now, the fact is, your wanter is going to change a lot. But if you need to think of soccer or sex or anything else you need to think about, about what's really fun to you, all I can tell you is you just multiply that by about 10,000 and sanctify it. And that's what you'll be doing. Whatever you want to do. Because God's going to give you a heart to desire with every bit of your passion you can imagine to do everything that's available to you in heaven. It's a wonderful place. He's giving it to you freely. It's coming to you by air, airship. You didn't earn it. You're just getting it as a son. In this text, he calls us individually sons. Not just corporately as a bride in whom he's taking great delight, but every single one of us are a son of the living Father. Then lastly, notice that this is not automatic. Others will be banned. He says in verse 8 that the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. They will experience the second death. For those of us who are in Christ, in the first resurrection, the resurrection of Christ, we will not fear the second death. If we've gone through the first death, and we are with God apart from our bodies, we don't fear the second death. We don't fear, we don't fear the, the judgment before the great throne of God. But those who are vile and those who are sinful, those who have turned their back on Christ, should fear it. Because heaven is not automatic just by dying or even having a family that thinks you're great or having a successful business or being admired in the community or even being benevolent. And I know... I know how difficult this is for us. We have a lot of friends who maybe uh, don't trust in Jesus Christ, but they live outstanding community lives. Gentlemen, we just have to train ourselves by the Scriptures, not by what you think or what anybody else thinks, but by the Scriptures. And the Scriptures teach us that, as Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. By putting your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. Why? Because the record required for heaven is not a benevolent record. It's not above average record. It's not a civil record. It's a perfect record. 
And there's only one way you can get that, and that's by it being reckoned to your account by faith in Jesus Christ. When you trust in Christ, onto your account goes His entire record. That's what the Bible teaches. Simply by trusting Him, He gives you that righteousness as a gift that admits you into heaven freely. But for those who don't have that record, they'll stand on their own record. And no record is good enough among sinful men to enter heaven. Now, notice in particular in this list, though, he starts with the cowardly and he ends with all liars. What's his point here? His point clearly seems to be to the church who is under trial and under temptation and under persecution. For those of you when the persecutions come and you switch sides like a coward, watch out. Because the cowards do not enter heaven. Those who associate with the church as long as it's working for them and then who leave the body of Christ when it doesn't work for them in this life, those are the cowards. Watch out. And those who are liars, those who profess to be followers of Christ and yet are living just like those who don't follow Christ, those will be the hypocrites. And so at the very beginning and the very end, you kind of have a bookend of this description which speaks of hypocrisy, insincere profession or insincere involvement in the church. So I want to say to all of us, you know, it's incumbent upon everyone here, let's be sure we've, we've professed our faith and put our trust in Jesus Christ. And if you haven't done that, all you have to do, you can, you can do it on your way to work today. You can simply say while you're driving your car, Lord Jesus Christ, I confess I'm a sinner. And that by all rights of justice, I do not deserve to be in heaven with you for eternity. But Lord, I want to be there. And therefore, I want you to forgive my sins. And I want you to give to me that gift of righteousness from your Son, Jesus Christ, that it allows me to enter heaven. And Lord, I want to give myself to you and follow you. That's all. That simple prayer, or something like it, is all, when, it come, when that comes from your heart, is a sincere reception of the righteousness of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. You are a son of God. It's that simple. It's amazing. It's miraculous. And you have eternal life to enjoy because of it. And once you do that with your lips, be sure that it's coming from a heart that's sincere because God judges the heart, not just the lips, but the heart. And for some of us, we're having a hard time getting our hearts and our lips together. So be very careful that we're not the ones who are banned at the last day. It's simple. Just put your trust in Christ and follow Him sincerely. Now, what difference does all this make? Number one, be sure you get there. Why are we given this vision? It's otherworldly. It's transcendent. It's too beautiful for us even to uh, imagine on our own. But John draws this beautiful picture for us to remind us, please, there's something very important, gentlemen, about this life. And the most important thing about this life is you meet the creator of this life. And you meet the redeemer of sinners. And his name is Jesus Christ. Be sure you're doing that. Secondly, be sure others get there too. And in our ministries of prayer for all of our family members, some of you, like myself, have extended family who don't know Christ savingly. My duty and my privilege every day of my life is to pray for my sisters that they'll come to know Jesus Christ. Because I love them. And my assignment in this life is to love them with the love of Jesus Christ. And one of the key ways I do that is to pray for them. Now, they probably don't want me to talk to them very much. We've done this in the past. Some of you have been through that. So that's fine. If that door is closed, nobody can close the door between me and heaven. And that's the most powerful thing I can do. What about you? Has God put on your heart certain men or women, family members, friends, children, grandchildren, 
parents, siblings that you need to be praying for who don't know Christ. That's our role in this life is to help gather up the harvest of God for heaven itself. You know, Amy Carmichael said that, uh, or, or maybe it was uh, Corey Tim Boom. I think it was Corey Tim Boom. She said, wrote a little ditty that said, uh, when I enter that beautiful city and the saved all around me appear, I pray someone will say to me, it was you who invited me here. And we want to be sure that we're the ones who are inviting others to enjoy this. Thirdly, be sure you persevere. This is the reason for heaven being revealed to us because we, like those in Revelation 2 and 3, are facing the trials and tribulations. You're being tested this very day. As soon as you go out this door, you're going to be hit with an onslaught of temptation and tests and trials. All kinds of things that the evil one would love for you to engage yourself in. You're going to be tested. We're given heaven so that we'll persevere. So we have this living vision in front of us that motivates us day after day. Then lastly, let me just make this note, which I think is really important for us who are married. Remember that our marriages are modeled after Christ and the church. It was interesting this past uh, Saturday night, uh, I did a wedding and the bride and groom chose as their text Revelation 21 1 through 7, not 8. <laughs> You'll notice verse 8. You're going to hell. You know, they didn't, they didn't choose that verse. But they, uh, they chose verses 1 through 7. Now, that, I think it was the first time I, I had ever uh, preached that text in a wedding. I mean, it's a common concept in a wedding. But I think it's the first time I've, I've had a bride and groom choose that text. And look at it. It's just absolutely beautiful. You know, it's, it's a gift of God. It comes down from heaven. A relationship. It's a gift. It's, it's a relationship that is binding by covenant oath. They will be my people and I will be their God. We bind ourselves to them by covenant oath. It's a beautiful relationship because just as the body is unified in marriage, you have a unity. It's a gracious relationship. We freely forgive. We freely give. We don't hold grudges against one another. You notice how gracious it is. It's, it's new every day, just as this is the new heavens and the new earth. We want there to be a freshness and a newness in the relationship. You can take every aspect of this relationship between God and His people, and you'll see what your marriage is supposed to be. So we're supposed to not just believe it in our heads for our own benefit, not just be able to recite it as memory verses. We're supposed to live it out in relationships in the church and particularly in marriage. This is what the marriage is supposed to look like. Isn't that something? So just as God has been gracious to promise these things to us, let us be gracious and give these things to our bride the Lord has given us in this life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You so much for the hope of eternal life which inspires obedience and perseverance on our parts. We thank You for the joy of knowing that with all the frustrations and the difficulties and the tests and the trials and the persecutions of this life, that one day very soon we shall be delivered from it all. And you shall be reigned as God uh, of all, and we shall be crowned as your people, your saints, your servants. We look forward to that day. Teach us to live for it, to long for it, to look for it. And Lord, teach us to live like citizens of heaven here in this place. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you real good.